Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Today I'm on the road in New York City attending Thriller Fest, the premier conference on the planet for thriller writers. I've managed to track down today's guest, and I'm really excited to have her on. K.J. Howe is an author, adventurer, and coincidentally, the executive director of Thriller Fest, the annual conference of international thriller writers. She has a master's degree from Seton Hill University in writing popular fiction. An avid traveler, she has raced camels in Jordan, surfed in Hawaii, and dived with great white sharks in South Africa. She became fascinated by the kidnap and ransom world after meeting the longest-held hostage in Iraq, Her debut novel, The Freedom Broker, was an international bestseller, and her latest book, Skyjack, has released to rave reviews. So, KJ, thanks for joining me here today. It's an absolute pleasure to join you. Thank you, Stephen. Well, let's start with Thriller Fest. You've been involved for years, and I know our paths have crossed many times. We've developed a nice friendship over the years. How long have you been involved in the leadership of this event? Well, I came to the very first Thriller Fest in Phoenix, Arizona, and I just was so excited to meet all of these thriller authors that I consider, you know, legends. <laughs> and um, I started volunteering. And uh-huh. from that, I took over as assistant pitch fest director. You took over? Well, like, you know, just, <laughs> no, 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 no. No, like that, no is, I know, uh, I know. Shane Yerke actually roped me in um, to helping with pitch fest. And I was assistant pitch fest director, then pitch fest director. And um, then Steve Barry, you know, who you never say no to, um, <laughs> offered the opportunity to be the executive director. And I think I've been doing it like nine years now. That's fantastic. Um, and Pitch Fest, by the way, is something you have to be careful how fast you say that because it could come out perhaps wrong. This is true. <laughs> I will enunciate it from now on. Thank you. What, what would you say is one of the highlights for you for, for Thriller Fest? You work with some of these authors all throughout the year planning this week-long program. And you mentioned Pitch Fest is where people can pitch their ideas to agents, right, here at the, at the conference. Yeah, they can pitch to over 60 agents, editors, and producers. We've recruited quite, uh, you know, a bevy of really talented individuals. And because we're located in New York City every year, it's wonderful because these agents or editors can walk down the street to join us. Excellent, yeah. And so when you think about all of the, the different programs you've been involved with with Thriller Fest, what would you say is one of the highlights for you for each year coming back here? I think it's spectacular when we have the Thriller Master Panel because – To be a Thriller Master, which is basically our Lifetime Achievement Award, you have to be in the business for 20 years, and you have to substantially change the genre somehow. So when you think about the past Thriller Masters, David Morrell, for example, I mean, First Blood with Rambo, that was iconic. How many of us would love to have a character's name become a word in the English language, (laughs) correct? Is it really? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And, you know... Uh, we, we've had, you know, Heather Graham and Sandra Brown and Ken Follett. I mean, the list, Jack Higgins, James Patterson, Clive Cussler. I mean, the list goes on. And I'm just so excited this year about George R. R. Martin coming because, I mean, this man is really, I would say, stood out in this, like, incredible thriller genre. Um, something a little bit fresh and different, though. It right? is different, Which yeah. I love right. because R.L. Stein is also a former thriller master, 
And I love the fact that he's a YA author, yet right. we're still honoring him. So I would say thrillers are page-turning fiction. I like it. And, um, and when you mentioned this idea of transforming the genre, you know, melding fantasy and thriller is, uh, it is a bit of a new, you know, kind of a new genre, I would say, a little bit. I also love Diana Gabaldon because she combined with Outlander series, you know, romance, history, time travel, science, right? like the science fiction. Yeah. Like, there's so many elements that if, in some ways, if she approached a publisher today, she would say, I'm sorry, we don't know how to market this. <laughs> but, we, you know, that's what I love about breakouts, that it's something fresh and different. Let's be a trailblazer. I think sometimes, actually, before we started recording, we were chatting for a moment about brands and getting pigeonholed in. And I think, I think when people are so concerned about what your genre is or how we're going to market you or how we're going to package you, that that can actually be a hindrance, I think, to authors to say, I've got to write something that will fit into a package. But I don't think your writing does that, and I don't think that's something that's something I've never tried to do either. I've tried to write the best story that I can. You can call it whatever you want, psychological suspense, thriller, police procedural, whatever you want, action, something like that. Um, but I think that this idea of telling a great story and letting other people sort out what they call it, it's kind of, a, I'm a fan of that, I think. I couldn't agree more. I think authors need to say, what is the story of my heart? And also, what book would I love to read? Because that resonates so deeply with yeah. you. And for me, I've always loved thrillers and a lot of fast-paced action, but I really wanted to do a strong female protagonist because I don't feel that there's enough of them out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's, so there's different elements. And I also, um, you know, my character, Thea Paris, has diabetes. And I really wanted to do a character that had a chronic illness. Hmm. Because I'd love to ask you this because you're so well-read. I mean, do you know of any other lead characters who have physical ailments other than alcoholism? <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's the one that pops to mind. Isn't it? right? it's like, or drug abuse. That's, yeah, that's, it's that's, like, that's there, too. No, that's a fantastic uh, point, and I like that. And, and again, it is coming up with something that's a little bit different and fresh and not the cliche, the same old thing. You know, the detective who's got a drinking problem and guess what? Oh, no, his marriage is on the rocks because he works too hard. I mean, it's like that's never been done before. Right. So. Um, so, yeah, I love that you're you're trying to do it in a in a fresh way. And but l let's back up for a second so that people can get an idea for what. This, what your books are a little bit about, this kidnap and ransom uh, genre that you've almost kind of created. I mean, there are other books out there like this, but not really that dive in so deeply into this. So I'm interested in hearing a little bit about your meeting with Peter Moore, the person who first introduced you to this, this uh, world of kidnap and ransom. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So I've spent the last five years immersed in the world of kidnap and ransom. I'm a former medical writer, and I love research. And I wanted to write a series, so I knew this was going to, you know, be something that I, I needed to build a foundation. So I did every, you know, I read everything I could get my hands on about kidnapping, but I knew I needed a lot more. So I looked up Kidnap and Ransom Conference, and believe it or not, there is one. Wow. Did not know that. Yes. And uh, it was only 80 people in Miami at the Biltmore Hotel. Huh. And I flew down there, you know, hoping that someone might consider talking to me. And it was interesting because the conference coordinator said to me after, I was really worried you were going to be shunned in the corner because it's a very dark, secretive world. 
Hmm. But I think what really worked was I'm not a journalist. I didn't want to talk about their cases per se, yeah. you know, to report on them. What I wanted to do was understand what they did for a living and why they were motivated to do oh. that. And, of course, I took them to the bar. <laughs> Works every time. <laughs> um, and so the gentleman that you connected with had been a hostage in Iraq? Yes. So I can tell you a little bit about Peter. He's become a very good friend, and I have the utmost respect for Peter. Um, so Peter was uh, basically working on contract in IT in Iraq. And if you can believe his poor luck, in his third week of work, all of a sudden, a, a policeman burst into his office where he was teaching a programmer and an analyst and put a gun to his head, marched him outside. The four British military guys he was over there with, you know, was supposed to be protecting him. The leader of the security force was being beaten, and there was over 100 cops out there in the parking lot. So it turned out later that these cops actually were moonlighting, like, as Iraqi militia. Oh, wow. And that's what they were after. And Peter was in the car, shoved in the back seat. And, you know, often in these countries, a little backsheesh, right, will mm. get you a, a break. So he had $300 American in his wallet, which is quite a sum considering, you know, what they make over there. Yeah. And he offered it to the gentleman. And he was very concerned when the gentleman took the bill of money and just threw him out the window and then proceeded to take his clothes off and throw them out the car window as well. And that's when he knew things were, this was not an arrest. Right. This was a kidnapping. Wow. And um, I was looking at the jacket of your book, and some of the other people in his crew did not make it out. All four of them did not make it out. Peter's the only one. And it's profound because we've had long talks, and I find it fascinating, first of all, to understand Peter's background and why he survived, and also to understand how, you know, with it, kidnapping, I mean, the good news about it is that 90% of people who are kidnapped do come home safely. Wow. But, you know, it depends where you're taken and who you are. You know, for example, if you're, you know, taken by ISIS, you know, and you're a journalist, I would do everything I could to try and escape because you're basically, your fate is sealed. Hmm. But if you're, you know, taken by a criminal gang who is using you as a commodity to make money, then I would say hang tight, rough it out, and hopefully you'll be negotiated home. I was talking with a gentleman who does, who's a writer, uh, but also does medical mission trips to Africa. And uh, he said in South Sudan, they had a warning that the, basically the U.S. government said, your life expectancy from the time you land is 30 hours. Not 30 hours before you get abducted, but 30 hours life expectancy. And if you do get abducted, nobody's coming to help you in South Sudan. And so he's like, you want to come on the next trip with me? <laughs> well, that sounds like fun. I'm in. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, it yeah, sounds like it, great fun. It's, it's amazing. There are over 40,000 kidnappings, and that's just the reported ones every year. Hmm. And on my website, kjhow.com, I have a map of the world. And it's highlighted where the you know safe zones are and the super hot zones are. So you can before you plan your next vacation or your next medical trip, <laughs> perhaps you should check that map yeah, out. Yeah, I think I need to check it out. <laughs> um, now, some people I know research is important for you, and you've spent years re researching this whole world of kidnapping and ransom and so on. Some people say have said that fact checking in fiction is just as important as it is in nonfiction. What are your thoughts about that? I, I think I agree. I couldn't agree more because for me, I want the okay, when I read for entertainment, you know, the good thrillers. Yeah. I want to be entertained 
and educated. Because I'm spending eight hours, let's say, whatever it is it takes to read a book. And I feel like I want to be a changed person by the end of that. And if a reader, a writer can take me on a fantastic thrill ride, but also educate me about things I've never learned about before, then I'm in with them forever. I, um, I've done some nonfiction over the years, and I almost find writing fiction more difficult um, because it's, if think about it this way, it's like nonfiction doesn't have to be believable. Because I, I was talking with someone about um, this event that had occurred. A skydiver from New Zealand fell, and her chute didn't open. And I think she fell like 7,500 feet and hit a blackberry bush, broke her leg, and had some bruises and some internal bleeding, but survived fine. No doctors can figure out how she survived. Well, you can never do that in a novel because people are going to be like, yeah, right. I don't believe it. I don't buy it. So you have to not only make sure that your science and research and guns and all that is accurate, but you've also got to make sure that not just accurate, but also believable. Yeah, that's very true. And that's what I find quite interesting because I'm inspired so much by my research. I take it and run with it. But there are stories that I agree with you. I probably couldn't put in a novel yeah. because it's too incredulous. You'd yeah. be like, well, that no, no, that can't happen. <laughs> really? You're sitting there yeah. like, yes, no, it actually, I did interview that person. Yeah, and truth happened. is often stranger than fiction. Yeah. And I think when you know, you're know you asking your reader to go on a ride with you and they're suspending this belief, I think that you also have to give them a lot of underpinning. I love that word because bottom line is you have to make it believable by supporting the different things you say and putting your character in that space and time. And I love giving little tidbits about background of, let's say, um, you know, let's say there's a group um, like FARC, for example, in Colombia, to give information, little tidbits so that the reader feels like, look, this is authentic, this is real, this is happening. And it grounds the reader in, in that steep knowledge. Yeah, and some of my books have dealt with the FBI, uh, an investigator, you know, with the FBI. And so just touring the FBI Academy, having legitimate resources and references within the FBI to be able to have them look at and say, is this accurate? In other words, not just is it um, believable or does it have some information, but is it authentic, I think, is what you said. Mm-hmm. And so, so, yeah, research is... And I don't know about you, but I never really thought of myself as someone who would enjoy research. Like, I love to tell stories. and uh, But over the years, I've found that it's one of those little secret pleasures of mine is to go and meet these fascinating people and just pick their brains. I love learning. And I think research allows for that. And you can just keep digging in. And honestly, my journey has changed me as a person because of the people I've met Hmm. within the kidnapping world. Everyone from Peter Moore and other hostages that I've met to the elite people, um, basically kidnap negotiators who travel to all the hotspots across the globe and risk their own life to save others. And these brave individuals, you know, are kind of in the shadows, right? They never mentioned, you don't hear about them, correct? Like, most people don't even know they exist until, you know, they read about them. And I find that just fascinating because they're unsung heroes. I I can't even imagine doing that, you know, for for a living, is to fly into places like South Sudan or wherever Mm -hmm. and be like, I'm here to negotiate the release of someone. But... Certainly they are unsung heroes because there's, you know, they're taking someone's life and literally 
saving their lives. So, and if yeah. you think about it too, uh, negotiation skills and the, the kind of talent you have to have to be one of these freedom brokers is what I actually, ironically, okay, they're called crisis response consultants. Okay. But I'm thinking that is so not a sexy title. Uh, <laughs> crisis response consultant. So I thought long and hard, spent a lot of time with the thesaurus, tried to come up, and I coined the term freedom broker. And I'm so honored that many of them are calling themselves freedom brokers now. Oh, that's awesome. Which is really nice, yeah. right? Because I've met several of them. And I think what it takes, you know, you have to have at least another language because nuances are critical in negotiations and you need to be able to communicate very clearly yeah. in another language. And if you don't speak that language, you need to have two interpreters. And the reason for that huh. is because you have to make sure that that person is literally translating what you said, not twisting it or asking for a little extra money so they can pocket because huh. you don't speak that language or perhaps doing a nuance that could be deadly to the you know hostage. So it's very fascinating. And these people usually come from um, an alphabet soup background, MI6, you know, CIA, yeah, FBI. Yeah. They need to be tactically strong because they're going in undercover. And they need to be patient. And they need to be well-spoken. And they need to be quick on their feet. And they have to be emp empathic because they're dealing with hostages' families. Yeah. Sounds like you have just described your main character. Hmm. <laughs> Is that a coincidence? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I do want to talk about your newest book in a minute. I was just thinking about this whole idea of the art of story and storytelling. Now, in your job, you uh, have had the opportunity and the honor and privilege of working with some of the best-selling um, uh, authors in the world, some of the best-known authors in the world. Um, what are some of the aspects for you that make a story great? Um, we both of us love thrillers. We love action, suspense, and so on. But I'm curious in your kind of background, what when you think about a story that really grabs your attention, what is it that really draws you in? It's a really good question. I would say two things. One is character. I have to bond with that person and want to care about exactly what happens to them. And I think it's critical that these characters are flawed and human hmm. to be likable. You know, I, I see a lot of action thrillers where this like unbeatable guy can take down everyone and it, there's no risk really for the yeah. character. And because I have a female character, I wanted to make it her vulnerable, yeah. vulnerable with the diabetes, vulnerable with um, a, a dysfunctional family, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, no matter if your protagonist is female or male, that's what makes, you know, characters interesting. I'm just not as into the ones where, you know, he's bulletproof and he can do anything. That's what and, I'm saying. And right? kill anyone. And, you yeah. never feel um, trepidation or they're in jeopardy, yeah. true jeopardy. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the keys to suspense is that true jeopardy that you just mentioned is when the character we care about is in peril or jeopardy, um, and that's kind of the aspect of that's why we worry, and that's where the apprehension comes from. Yeah, and the second point that I feel is just critical when I just want to be glued to a book, I recently reread First Blood by David oh, yeah. Morrell, right? And I was blown away because that book has pub was published 50 years ago, hmm. if you can believe it. And yet it was such a compelling read, and I, w I really encourage people to reread that book if they read it a long time ago. And what I loved about it was the full immersion feeling you feel when you're reading it. Like, I literally was there because of the 
incredible descriptions David mm. used. Um, you know, the character hides in the mud at one point, and you almost feel like he's holding his breath under the mud, right? Yeah. And you just feel like you're doing that. You're holding like, your yeah, own I'm breath. Like, I, was, I was, like, so tense. <laughs> and there's another scene with bats in a cave that was so evocative, I was transported to that moment. So I think that just full immersion, I think, is the best way to put it. If you've got the talent as a writer to create this world that the reader can be just, like, picturing and feeling, it's unbelievable. One time I was telling stories at this elementary school, and uh, um, the story had to do with this swamp that I had entered. It's kind of a scary story or whatever it was. Anyway, at the end of this, this program, one of the students came up to me. He said, how'd you get that swamp on stage? See, he'd seen the swamp up on stage. And to me, like when I was telling the story, I saw a swamp too as, as a storyteller, right? I kind of, I immersed myself into the story. And, and, um, but this, this kid saw a swamp. And so for me, that was one of the greatest compliments I've ever had as a storyteller because someone was, just as you said, immersed into, mm-hmm. they drew, you know, drew, drew that person in and then he could see this story unfold. And, and as authors, of course, we do that through word choice, through mood, through all of the details, the sensory. And, but it's not just piling in those ingredients. It's finding a way to mix them together so nobody notices the ingredients. Yeah, I think you're right. And it, I think one of the key things I found helpful, just when I was out there writing, is to take highlighters and highlight where you have description Highlight where you have dialogue, highlight where you have action and narration, and have them all different colors, because what you should see is a rainbow, because it should be woven and integrated, whereas if you consistently go too much description or too much, you know, even dialogue, you know, you'll see that, and it'll stand out to you as, hey, wait a second, I'm focusing on one thing and not, like, blending. And and given we're here at the Story Blender, perfect <laughs> analogy. No, I love it. it. And uh, and I think that's really uh, helpful. I've never done that. I've never even heard that suggested. But I think that's a really helpful idea, especially as we're working maybe uh, for any listeners who are working on their own stories to write, um, to really take that to heart and um, keep, you know, it's it's about balance. But it's also about movement. It's just kind of intriguing, you know. It's about you want the right balance, but you also you can have something perfectly balanced and not be super intriguing. So it's about that forward escalation and movement as well. And, and um, so, yeah, actually that brings up this thought that I had is your books have a lot of action, nonstop action and suspense. As most of the reviews kind of point out just how great the action is. Um, so... Take, take, us to, take us to your brain for a minute. When you're writing an action sequence or part of your story, how do you balance out action with emotion to build deep characters? Well, I think I love writing action scenes. You know, it's a passion of mine, and I've always loved those kind of films too. Yeah. So I have a very visual process, you know, where I kind of almost see it and I also feel it. Uh, I jump between kind of seeing a movie screen in front of me, right, and yeah. and also being in the character's head and feeling each kind of movement. And um, Stephen and I had the great pleasure of going to Phoenix and studying <laughs> Rigo Durazo, the famous Rigo Durazo. We sure did. Tell tell our listeners a little bit about Rigo. So, wow, geez, it, this, this <laughs> gentleman, uh, I, I think he moves like a cat. 
and he is the most he's a knife fighting guru who also is so proficient with the gun it's a beautiful thing to watch him you know basically yeah. like a cat moving isn't he you just, yeah. and also we did hand to hand combat so we just <laughs> learned all about that and i think he's a huge inspiration in fight scenes with his fluidity right mm. and the yeah. way he executes his moves but i love the fact that uh, going back to the emotion you said okay yeah that every character has a pair of glasses on and you need to see the world as that character does see the world so let's say in Thea's case you know she's very well trained but she's also realizes that when she's fighting men she is vulnerable um several special forces guys are my experts and they told me they really loved my fight scenes because i don't pretend that Thea can take on five strong guys and right. and and leave without a, a chip on her nail polish. Yeah. Uh, I I I'm gritty, I'm real and also she is under duress and being threatened. You know, so it's 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 not like like we talked about earlier bulletproof people. Yeah. She's not bulletproof. She also has the vulnerability of needing insulin um and if she has a high or a low, she's even more vulnerable during a fight scene. So these kind of things play into it. Fight scenes are hard for me to write. Um you know I I'll write one and then I'll I'll read it later and I'll think okay could he really have hit the guy like did I make it clear to readers that they were 3 feet apart or something you know or or did I just assume that readers would think that they were close because I was describing this fight and so I end up having to go over and over them thinking about the logistics of the fight um where people would need to stand to have this uh event occur whether it's a headbutt or someone's punched in the stomach or something like that um and uh yeah it's it's not easy uh, for me I, it's a challenge it's, uh, mm-hmm. i think well well i mean a lot of times if i watch a movie and they have this amazing fight scene i love i love <laughs> to do that. And I said, and, I, and I'll ask myself, how would I write that? And a lot of times I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no clue how I would write that fight scene. You know what you need to do is put it in slow motion yeah. and do every move and oh then play goodness. with that. It would be a great exercise. Yeah. Great stuff. I love talking about uh this whole idea of fights and fight scenes and I had Gary Dixon on who's uh another thriller writer. And he was he was a Golden Gloves boxer, um, and I asked him about fight scenes, writing fight, and he said, "You try to express the emotion more than the action. In other words, like it's more about the emotion of what the exper- person is experiencing than it is." And then he took a left hand and punched him in the right part of the jaw or something like that. So this is pretty interesting. I would agree wholeheartedly. If you read Lee Child's work and you see Reacher in a fight scene, quite often he's, you know, processing and thinking about his next move and calculating what the other guy is going to do. And I think it stimulates, you know, our kind of natural protective measures that we take, you know, to like basically survival, right? We we think we're thinking ahead what's he going to do? Like like uh, of course you being a chess expert there with power <laughs> series would ex- like you know basically you're thinking a couple moves ahead, right? Yeah. And that's what I think is intriguing that to show that your character is smart and also I love it when and I try to do this all the time with Thea that she doesn't actually have a weapon with her, but she designs one. 
than the MacGyver because yeah. that shows yeah. intelligence. Oh yeah, right? cleverness, and ability. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I sometimes have told people whenever you get to the um, the climax that the character has to use wit or grit to get out of it. And it's just an easy way for me to remember when I'm shaping my stories that it's not about them being rescued by someone else, but it's wit is their cleverness or grit is their perseverance. And it's just one of those easy things to remember, but that's what's satisfying to us. And we love this idea that she's clever and, and can MacGyver stuff to be able to get out of it instead of just pummel people. <laughs> yeah, and like I said to you, too, like, um, you know, when I have these talks with my experts, you know, who are special forces people or, you know, tactical geniuses, it's really about understanding your strengths and weaknesses as a fighter, and in Thea's case, right, being a bit smaller than a right. man, and she's got to use leverage, she's got to use physics to her advantage, she's nice. got to use tools for her advantage. Um, and she has to be able to outsmart the opposition rather than outmuscle. Now, when you're writing in a field that has lots of cliches, action novels and and uh, maybe kidnapping or something, I, I just think of action cliches um, that might come up in thrillers in general, but. What I'm more interested in is basically how do you hook your readers and carry them through a story with lots of twists and surprises and avoid the cliches and stuff that's been done too much in the past. Donald Moss gave some great advice during one of his sessions at Thriller Fest. He's a brilliant uh, you know, analyzer of story. And what he said to do was to, when you come to a pass where you need to make a decision, write down the... 10 to 20 things that you would think would happen next, okay? And realize that the reason they came to mind so quickly was the fact that they were accessible because they were cliches. Hmm. So to keep mining that and go to the list and all of a sudden, you know, as you get lower on that list, you'll come up with a fresh idea that would be unexpected and will surprise the reader and yourself. Yeah. And the reason is because you've sifted through those cliches and said, you know, oh gosh, here we go again. Aren't those satisfying moments, though, as a writer, but also as a reader, when you, when you come up with something like that? Now, I um, very often people will ask, you know, on the show if if someone is an outliner or a more organic writer, and I'm very organic. I think you know that from from so just our discussions in the past. And but when you write organically, and you don't always know exactly what's going to happen in the next act or scene or whatever. And then all of a sudden you're writing it and you throw out those cliches, the common suggestions and stuff. And all of a sudden you come to this and you, wow, write this idea down. Isn't that fun though? Well, I'm on the same page as you because I feel like if I had to outline my books, I would be very thwarted and I also would be bored. I like to live life on the edge and just go where it takes me. And same with writing. Like it's just, hey, what's going to happen? And sometimes the characters just do something that surprises you, and I love that. There was uh, my second novel. There was one character, Tessa, was a teenage girl, and she just kept vying for a bigger part in the story. And it wasn't a conscious decision that I made, like I want this to be some sort of coming-of-age thing for this teenage girl. Uh, it was just like I kept writing, and it was like this little voice inside of me, like, I want a bigger part. And I just had to... I just gave it to her, I guess, or she took it from me or something. But yeah. I think it's our subconscious. 
You know, Stephen King kind of gives, in his book on writing, gives us an idea that a, a story is there, and our, our goal is to uncover it, not so much make it up. So it's like, let's say that you have an archaeological dig, and you're brushing aside the soil, and you see, um, oh, there's this dinosaur bones. Wow, that's great. So you start to uncover it and might see, oh, this bone's connected to that. Oh, that's that's great. And so that the dinosaur is intact there, and your job, your goal is to uncover it. And that's the way he looks at story. And I think it's really fascinating. Over the years, I've found that I kind of agree with that, that there's a story there. And whether it's my subconscious or my conscious or whatever, it's it's brushing it away, brushing everything away until the story emerges. And um, what, do, what do you think for you? Is it subconscious? thoughts or something or yeah I, I mean it's a really good question and it's tough to even know because there is some magic going on I yeah. think that's just I think people who love to tell stories that innately it's almost in our DNA right too because some yeah. people like you would talk to and just have no interest in telling a story right they just but they just would rather read um, but when you're creative like that I think your mind just takes you in different directions and you have to just go with it. It's it's hard to even say what it is. I love your idea though of it kind of being like a block of stone and that you know you chip away at it day by day and all of a sudden you have a beautiful sculpture hopefully. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um yeah, for me it's a lot of chipping and sometimes I'll chip away and something will break off, but when it breaks off then I realize, oh, I didn't really Notice mm-hmm. that there was this little thread of gold <laughs> inside of I the agree. Block, you You're know? discovering like yeah, mining, mining yeah, for I kind treasure. of it is, and and uh, some people will say to me sometimes like, "How did you come up with that twist?" and and I'm like, "I I don't know that I did come up with it. It kind of came to me, but after a you know months of work on it and thinking about it, but I didn't plan it out beforehand. I just um, I just as I wrote, I asked myself those questions. You know, that I'm sure you asked, you know, how can I make this more gripping? How can I add a twist to pivot into a new direction? How can I escalate the tension? And as we ask those questions, I feel like the story begins to emerge. 100%. It's a journey. Well, not just a journey uh, that that uh, we take, but one that we want our readers to take. And that's why I wanted to talk a little bit about your new book, Skyjack, because this is a journey that we want all re- all of our listeners to take with us. So tell us a little bit about, um, this is your, your second novel. It's the newest one in your series. And uh, all the reviews have been fantastic for it. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah. So Thea Paris, of course, is an elite kidnap negotiator. And she has a history of kidnapping in her family. So her brother was taken at 12 years old while she was eight, and she watched. He became a child soldier, and he, but he did come back nine months later, but he was never the same. So Thea um, has a very personal reason for wanting to be a kidnap negotiator. So in Skyjack, she's taken two young African orphans from Nairobi to London to introduce them to their newly adopted family when the plane that they're on is being hijacked. And the reason I wanted to do something, first of all, I love flying. I'm passionate about it. My father was a private pilot and loved aerobatics, so I'd been up and with him for that, which was exciting. And so I also love to learn with every book. So I I interviewed stealth bomber pilots, military pilots, commercial pilots, test pilots, 
and some really wonderful people helped me. And what I wanted to sort of do was what if, you know, with all the security we have now after 9-11, trying to get people to stay out of the cockpit, right? We have these reinforced doors that are basically grenade proof. We have um, a trap door that only goes from the cockpit to the cabin, but not vice versa. We have locks on the cabin of the cockpit doors such that the pilot can keep pressing them and, you know, basically bar anyone else from accessing the cockpit. And my premise was like, okay, all this stuff is great if we're having terrorists on the plane, but what if the guy behind, you know, the wheel, so to speak, yeah. uh, is is the one that you're worried about? Then he's in there, and this has happened both with the German wings flight, as well as the Malaysian flight, where it was murder suicide by the pilot or co-pilot. And I just thought this was worth exploring in a story because it's fresh and different. And the people that we entrust the most, pilots, because we have to, sure, yeah. can, you know, be at either lost cause or be under pressure to do something. You know, it's really interesting to me, this idea of being trapped on the airplane. There's uh, no way out. There's no escape. And you've got to solve this right now, right here. Uh, almost brings to mind like a locked room or locked door mystery. I like that environment for your story, it already has lots of tension right in there. Well, I um, know that people have a great deal of fear around flying, right? Because we surrender control as soon as we get in there. So I thought by putting people in an uncomfortable position and then, like you said, being trapped in the plane, and you don't want to do any spoilers at all, but <laughs> a lot of things go wrong, let's just leave it at that. And also, um, the technical knowledge I gained from speaking to these aviation experts, I put to good use to create more tension. And that was so much fun, because to learn about how a plane works in different parts, and there's a part of the plane called a hellhole. Huh. Yeah, so you want to know more about that, right? <laughs> that sounds and, perfect. Yeah, exactly. So all of these elements, I think, really add to it, and... I love the fact, too, that, you know, when you're in the air and then also if, if you land somewhere, um, you can repressurize the plane so that people cannot access it from outside. Hmm. And there's a lot of different games you can play. And, and also, um, if you're in the heat, because let's say Libya plays a role in the novel, uh, that you want to make sure that you have the APU um, on, because basically when the plane is shut down, all of a sudden it becomes like a sauna, right? And uh. it's very dangerous because especially in somewhere like Libya, where you have intense heat, it suddenly becomes within a half hour, 80 degrees inside the plane, huh. which starts to make the passengers extremely uncomfortable. And given Thea has diabetes, heat is not her friend. So this, I love it. like all this kind of interplay is just fascinating to, you know, realize and play out. And it works. Don't you love it? The best part <laughs> is when facts fit the plot and make you have, ideas for the research kind of gives you inspiration for making things worse for your character. Absolutely. I was writing one of my books the night and I stumbled across this reference in a book about um, a knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, right? That had to do with the Boccaccio's to Cameron, which is a book that was relating to the whole story. And it was like, I came across that how in the world is this connection? You know, it's like I was doing research and I had this story in mind and then this connection came out of nowhere and everyone was like, oh, you must have been planning that out for like two books to set it all up. I'm like, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Just nod and accept it. <laughs> Just nod and accept it. Well, 
Well, I have really appreciated your time. I know this is a tremendously busy week for you, and uh, just that you were able to slip away and share some thoughts with our listeners is fantastic. So I love uh, I love what you had to say, and just your passion for not just storytelling, but getting the research right. I mean, just as you were describing all the stuff with the airplane here at the end, anyone who's listening knows she knows what she's talking about. And not only does she know technically what she's talking about, she knows story as well. So we appreciate that. Now, where's the best place for people to connect with you online or to maybe follow your career if you have a book signing coming up? Sure. I have a website, kjhow.com, and I also uh, would encourage everyone to sign up for a newsletter because I promise travel safety tips. Which oh. is, I think, a nice bonus, right? Excellent. And um, as well, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. I love hearing from people, so please reach out. And my email is also on the Thriller Fest website. So if anyone has questions about the conference or how we can help you support your career as an author, please don't hesitate to reach out. I've been involved with ITW for years, and I second that. It's a great organization, and I'm glad to be a part of it myself. For more information about my other books, you can check out stephenjames.net. Our character conference is coming up in October, and you can check out characterconference.com. That'll be in Atlanta. We invite you all to come if you're writers. Uh, For more information about our other guests and to check out other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. Thanks to our host, Suspense Radio. Don't forget to subscribe to all of their stellar broadcasts. And my friends, always remember... The art of a story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.